0: Hello and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people who are known today as Stockbridge Muncie
1: Community. I'm Labonia Mallory. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Scott Kellogg of the Raddock Center about their upcoming volunteer tree planting. Then, Bria Barthel brings us a story about Rise which has expanded their refugee services. Later on, Moses Nagel gets a scoop on the town of Bethlehem's proposal to preserve historic farmland. He spoke with a member of Save Bethlehem's Farmland and Open Space about Proposition 2. After that, Marsha Lazarus gives us a look into Whispering Bones and an evening of ghost stories. Finally, Andrea Cunliffe speaks with co-founder of Salon Seance The End of Time. Historian Simon Lee. She speaks again. Andrea Cunliffe speaks with co-founder of Salon Seance's The End of Time historian, Simon Lee, about the performance coming to the sanctuary. But first here are the headlines.
0: According to the state controller, drug overdose deaths surge during the COVID nineteen pandemic in New York. With opioid-related fatalities increasing by 68% from 2019 to 2021,
1: the owner of Digital Gadgets, who gave a large donation to Governor Hochul after after his firm received a controversial no-bid $637 million contract for COVID-19 for COVID-19 test, contributed nearly. 235,000 more on Tuesday to the state Democratic Party, bringing his total contributions to more than half a million dollars.
0: The record reports that the Capital District Transportation Authority, CDTA, ridership numbers have hit the highest level since the pandemic began. Total ridership in September was 1.27 million, which is 50 percent more than last September
1: the Lansenburg Central School District will award staff retention bonuses of up to $3,600 to all currently employed full-time faculty and staff who worked in the district during the last two school years. That's it for the headlines.
0: For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding Capital region through broad grassroots participation.
1: Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute to to learn how you can contribute go to mediasanctuary.org email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390.
0: On Saturday November 12th the Raddick Center will be having a volunteer food volunteer tree planting and this segment was produced by Mark Dunley talking to Scott Kellogg of the Raddick Center.
2: We're joined by Scott Kellogg, who is the uh, educational director of the uh, Raddick Center uh, in the south end of Albany. And they're going to be holding, I guess, the last of their three days or efforts around uh, planting on Saturday, November 12, planting uh, fruit trees uh, near the um, uh, Raddick Center. Uh, in the South End, so so Scott, I know you've been on several times before. But why don't you just give us a brief introduction uh, about the Radix Center and why plant food trees in the South End? Sure, thanks for having me on.
3: Yes, so the Radix Ecological Sustainability Center is a nonprofit organization in the South End of Albany, teaching ecological literacy to South End residents and particularly to youth. Uh, maintaining a demonstration site of sustainable tools and technologies designed to teach urban residents, again, with a particular focus on youth, how to have greater local access and control over essential resources such as food and water, waste management, energy production, really interested in the intersection of environmental and social justice. So this planting on November 12th is going to be the third and final with our current round of funding for the South End Biocultural Diversity Forest Program. And we have, to date, planted 100 trees in the south end of Albany. And we're going to plant an additional 50 on the 12th, bringing our total up to 150. And we are specifically targeting the south end of Albany, which is a formerly line neighborhood that has a dearth of tree cover that results in higher temperatures, as much as a 10-degree temperature difference between neighborhoods with significant tree canopy coverage and those without so as climate change progresses this is something that we're going to need to pay particular attention to as our vulnerable populations of people are going to suffer the first and the worst of a consequence of being in a warmer world
2: so as somebody who is not an expert on uh, tree planting I understand you have you know 50 mature apples it uh, be pears, cherries, and a bunch of other trees. Um, how, how big are the trees uh, when they are planted? And isn't uh, mid-November a little tough for uh, tree planting? Yeah, so there are two tree
3: planting seasons up here in the northeast at this latitude, and those are spring and fall. And those correspond to when bare root trees are being harvested uh, trees ideally are in a state of dormancy when they are dug up out of the ground and then transplanted into a new location which is uh is, is a shocking experience for a tree to have that done but uh, that's typically done in april and then again in november november is actually a great time because the trees are pretty solidly dormant And they're going into the ground, they're already sleeping, and they'll have all winter to work on regenerating their root systems. And then when they wake up again in the spring and start putting out their leaves, they've had time to adjust being in their new home. And these trees are fairly large. As a requirement of the grant, they need to be about one inch diameter, or what we call one inch caliper. And that's so that they stand out more as a tree and are less likely to get trampled on or knocked over by a snowplow or, or anything like that.
2: Now you already planted a hundred uh, trees. Um, how have, you know, they've been doing so far or, or neighbors paying attention to them and how long will it take before they actually start producing, you know, fruit for uh, neighborhood residents? Yeah. So
3: the trees that we planted last year are doing great. We worked all summer, Having crews of folks out there, our high school youth employment program, RADIC staff, our AmeriCorps employees out there watering trees, using our electric cargo tricycles, uh, bringing uh, 20 gallons of water to each tree per week. And this was a particularly challenging summer to do that as we got very little rain. So there wasn't much help from above, but we got the trees through the summer. And some of them actually already were starting to bear fruit. So hopefully pretty soon they'll begin producing once again. And wanted to discuss the aspect of a little bit, the the edible component, because that's, in addition to trees providing benefits in terms of cooling, air purification, carbon sequestration, biodiversity enhancement, stormwater infiltration, there's also potential for them to be food producing. And that's something that's commonly overlooked or actively discarded by municipalities because they're concerned about the potential mess that fruit could create. And my counter argument to that is that in a food apartheid food swamp neighborhood, that's not going to be an issue because the need for food is so great that any food will be harvested off the trees. And that's been consistent with what I've observed in the South End for a number of years so we're very interested in this idea of urban agroforestry let's combine stre- all the benefits of street trees with the potential to be food producing as well to increase local food sovereignty
2: now the, the radix center is actually only a few blocks uh, below the uh, governor's mansion so has governor hopeful or lieutenant governor antonio delgado stopping by to help of these trees we would certainly welcome them to come okay um now is this something that is being done in other other cities around new york or even around the country around the country
3: around the state the dc has a urban and community forestry program that's actually the the primary funder of our program so they're incentivizing this work to be done in a number of places i think as people are becoming aware of, of, of the idea of climate justice and the, the extent of the, the the work that needs to be done, the challenges that we're facing, particularly in our urban centers and with vulnerable populations, when we're looking at ways to intervene and have an impact that we can get a, a large return on investment, so to say, with street tree planting in terms of what it takes to actually put them in the ground and then what we get in return. I am personally a huge advocate of investing in green infrastructure, particularly with trees, as the yields that will come from them will last decades into the future. But we really, the time to act is now. We really need to plant a, a diversity of tree species in our urban areas, uh, not just a diverse, diversity species, but trees that themselves have genetic diversity, meaning they've been grown from seed. That the more diverse our tree population is and our urban forest is, The more resistant and resilient it's going to be to stresses in the future like a lot of the diseases that are coming down the pipe and that will be compounded by the the impacts of a warming climate
2: now this tree planting is taking place on saturday november twelfth, from 10 a.m to 2 p.m 153 grand street is the uh, address of the radic center do you need volunteers? Do volunteers just show up? Should they call ahead to let them let you know you're coming?
3: We absolutely need volunteers. If they could contact me at sk at radix r a d i x center c e n t e r dot org, that would be great. Just so I have a sense of of how many volunteers we can expect. But it's also fine for folks just to show up at ten o'clock at the Radix Center, one fifty three Grand Street, and we will. Begin planting trees and work until they're all on the ground.
2: We have about 90 seconds left. If people want to find out more about the Radix Center, uh, I know you got a website. And are there other events or activities coming up that you'd like to let people know about in the last minute or so?
3: They can definitely check out our website at www.radixcenter.org. Get in contact with us if you're ever interested in coming in. Visiting the site to learn about volunteer opportunities and other events in the future. We're sort of winding down a lot of our programs for the winter, but we'll be ramping back up again in the winter spring as we start doing maple syrup tapping and then get ready for events like Earth Day in April.
2: And does the Radix Center offer, you know, training workshops for, for people during the year?
3: Yeah, we offer quite a bit. So again, check out our website, where we'll, we'll be posting uh, offerings for, for educational workshops and volunteer opportunities.
2: Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Scott Kellogg, the uh, Educational Director of the uh, Radix Center, 153 Grand Street, south of Detroit. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: That was Scott Kellogg of the Radix Center in the south end of Albany talking about the Saturday, November 12th food tree planting with Mark Dunley.
0: In our next segment, in this year, 2021-22, to the Capital Region welcomed 650 new resettled uh, refugees and immigrants. The number is 50% higher than the largest annual count in the last 20 years. Bria Barthel speaks with Daniel Butterworth, Executive Director of Refugees and Immigrant Support Services of Emmaus, rise about these changes and their services.
4: Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm talking with Daniel Butterworth, Executive Director of Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of Amayos, an Albany-based nonprofit that helps refugee and immigrant families adjust to life in a new city, a new culture, and, and usually a new language. Daniel, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
5: Thanks for having me.
4: I understand that you are celebrating 15 years of service to refugee and immigrant families and that services have expanded because the need has
5: expanded so much.
4: Tell us something about immigration and number of people coming to Albany.
5: So yes, we're celebrating our 15th anniversary as a program here in the capital region, serving immigrants and refugees who are newly arrived. We are, um, We are not a resettlement agency. We partner with the US Committee on Refugees and Immigrants, um, who are a resettlement agency, and we provide English language instruction, after-school programming for youth, family support services, and immigration assistance. Um, Over the course of refugee resettlement efforts here in the capital region, um, this past year was one of the largest years on record Uh, As far as resettlement numbers, Um, in part because of the conflicts in Ukraine and in Afghanistan. Um, The number of individuals resettled this past year in in the fiscal year 2021 2022 was about 50% higher than it was on the largest year in the last 20 years. Um, So, about 650 individuals from about 400 as as the peak in the past years so
4: hold on 650 in just this past in just that one year
5: in just this one year yes and um, and and that really is a result of uh, federal uh, changes to immigration and refugee resettlement policies, um, but also because of the specific needs in conflict zones uh, around the world, particularly Afghanistan and Ukraine. Um So with these increasing numbers of resettlement in the capital region, we have been working on building the capacity of our services here. And as such have been expanding our staff, expanding our our reach, um, and hoping to continue that momentum um, as we expect this this trend to continue of uh, larger numbers of resettlement.
4: Now, when you say expanding your staff, when I first got involved with RISE as a volunteer a number of years ago, it seemed like a three-person operation. And now, in the, just the past year, you've really expanded the staff. Tell us something about the people who are working here now.
5: So we have restructured the organization a bit, um, and we have four main programs, each of which are growing. Um, the, uh, the area where we're growing the most right now is in our family support services area. Um, And we've just hired two new case managers um, as a result of our partnership with the U.S. Committee on Refugees and Immigrants. Um, And these two case managers are helping individuals and families uh, as soon as they walk through the door, identifying particular needs, linking them to social services and aid programs that they're eligible for and um, trying to break down some of the language barriers or cultural barriers that might be preventing fr- people from, from accessing the services that they're entitled to. So this is a, this is a big growth area for us, um, and we're seeing quite a bit of need. Um, our offices are, I think, busier than they've ever been before.
4: And another one of the programs is the after-school program, and that is expanding in a few dramatic ways. Tell us about that.
5: We're really excited about this uh, expansion. So we have a brand new youth program director. Um, She started less than a month ago and is already making some great changes to our program, um, including uh, more emphasis on social-emotional learning and trauma-informed teaching methods. But our program here is going to be uh, doubling in size and doubling the number of locations where we're serving. So currently we serve about 50 kids at our RISE location here in the Pine Hills. Uh, in addition, we uh, we are starting a partnership with the School District of Albany um, that will help us to build a satellite after-school program at the Albany International Center
4: can you tell us something about the Albany International Center?
5: Sure. So this is the City School District of Albany's school that is uh, specifically serving newcomer students to the district. And these are students who have arrived in the capital in, in the city of Albany within the last two years uh, to provide the specialized educational supports that they may need. The International Center also houses the school district's. Dual language program, which does uh, instruction in both English and in Spanish. Our satellite location will be serving the newcomers program, so students who have arrived uh, within the last two years, and um, helping provide some after-school programming that wasn't really available in the past. We've been, uh, we've had after-school programming since. Uh, nearly the very beginning of RISE's programs. So we have some specialized expertise in working with this student population and um, identifying and addressing some of the particular needs that they may have because of uh, interrupted or limited access to formal education.
4: You mentioned doubling the number of students on the site. How many different students are you working with here at the RISE Center?
5: Right now at RISE, we serve about 50 students. The the location here in the Pine Hills will be expanding to serve 75, and we're currently accepting uh, applications from families and schools to um, place students in those additional slots. And the Albany International Center satellite is going to be serving 45 students. And that program, one of the very exciting pieces is um, RISE has always served students ages 5 to 13. That's our certification by the state. The program at the Albany International Center will be split and serving grades uh, K through 12. So it'll be the first time that we're serving junior and senior high kids um, from refugee and immigrant backgrounds. Um, so we're really excited about that change and are building a program um, that will be particular to, to the needs of, of this population.
4: And so that's the uh, case management support, the, the after-school program. And I understand that the uh, programs for adult learners has been expanding, and you now have a collaboration. It's moved off-site to the Educational Opportunity Center.
5: Right. So so the Educational Opportunity Center, or EOC, um, is, uh, is an initiative – based through the the SUNY system um, the capital district EOC is uh, is organized through Hudson Valley Community College and has their main location in Troy they provide um, GED support uh, workforce training certificate programs and the like um, for folks who might not have access to uh, other means of education we've been part we we've entered into a partnership with capital district eoc to uh, host our english language classes for adults at their albany location which at the moment is um inside of westgate plaza 30 north russell road at the albany center for education these are large well-equipped classrooms with all of the technology that um modern learning methods require. And as a result of this partnership, um, we've been uh, co-enrolling our RISE students in EOC programs, um, which comes with a number of uh, support services, um, free bus passes for our students, and access to the certificate programs that EOC provides. So uh, this partnership, it's very new within the last two months, um, but we are seeing that there is a lot of need for English as a new language classes here in the Capital Region, and this partnership, this space, is really allowing us to accommodate that growing need. So this year, we're about eight weeks into our fall semester, and we have over 130 adult English language learners currently enrolled in our programs. Um, This is the largest number we've seen at this point in the year ever in our past. And um, we're really excited about the momentum and being able to provide quality services to those who need it.
4: So after school program, case management, uh, adult education, you've got a lot going on. If people want to help, what are the options?
5: We do have a lot going on. We are always in need of volunteers across all of our various programs. Um, You can find out about opportunities for volunteering on our website or by calling our office. Uh, Our website is www.rise-albany.org. That's R-I-S-S-E-albany.org. Or if you call the office, 518-621-1041. So in, and in addition to volunteering, um, donations are always very much appreciated.
4: Again, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, talking with Daniel Butterworth, Executive Director of the Refugee and Immigrant Support Services of AMAOS. Daniel, thanks for everything you're doing, welcoming people to Albany. And I look forward to watching the continued expansion of programs.
5: Thanks so much, Bria.
1: For another segment on RISE from earlier this week, visit mediasanctuary.org. For more on RISE, visit www.rise-albany.org. For those just tuning in, I'm Jacob Boston,
0: And I'm Lafonia Mallory. You're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM in Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM in Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM in Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM in Albany, and streaming online at Mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media right here in Troy, New York.
1: If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The town of Bethlehem's proposal to preserve historic farmlands has turned into a hotly contested question that will decide in a public referendum on the ballot on, the ballot on November 8th. Moses Nagel spoke to, spoke to resident Paul Tick from Save Bethlehem's Farmland and Open Space about Proposition 2.
6: Next Tuesday, voters in Bethlehem will have two referendums on the back of their ballots. The statewide Proposition 1 is the Clean Water, Clean Air, and Green Jobs Environmental Bond Act that would authorize the state comptroller to sell bonds on behalf of the state of New York to pay for projects related to greenhouse gas emissions, flood risk, clean water, land conservation, and other climate-related matters. In Bethlehem, Prop 2 will decide whether The town can purchase and preserve over 300 acres of historic farmland. One man, former Republican Vice Chair Steve Patterson, who town board members say has opposed many past efforts at preserving open space in the town, has been the main activist behind forcing a vote on the proposal and has galvanized some resistance to the purchase, which previously had seemed fairly uncontroversial. I spoke with Paul Tick of the group Save Bethlehem's Farmland and Open Space, who supports the proposition and the plan. He explained what approval of Prop 2 would mean.
7: That will allow the town to spend uh, approximately $3 million and purchase uh, 307 acres of farmlands and open space. And with that purchase, uh, those lands will have easements on them so they'll be open space forever.
8: What are these lands?
7: The lands are at the intersection of Route 9W and Wimple Road. They've historically been farmlands, some of them going back to pre-Revolutionary War days. Some of it's not farmed right now and some of it is currently being farmed. And the owner of all 307 acres has come to the town and offered them these acres for sale. They've been uh, appraised at being worth $4 million, and he's willing to sell them to the town for $3 million, not the four that it's appraised for. And part of that deal would be to have an easement on these lands so they'd be open space forever.
8: If this proposition doesn't pass, then they're likely to be sold for yes. whatever use the buyer chooses? Yes.
7: The owner has made it very clear that if the town doesn't buy it, he's going to sell it to a developer. So most likely, if it's not purchased by the town, it will be uh, developed into either many, many housing units. You could easily fit 100 single-family homes there, probably more, or uh, possibly apartments, possibly a warehouse for an Amazon or a Costco or you know Target-type warehouse. But it will be sold. It's prime real estate, and the owner is anxious to sell it.
8: Can you tell me why your group thinks that open space is the best use for this land?
7: Sure. You know, we think voting yes on Proposition 2 is really important to uh, acquire this land uh, because overall in the United States, there's about 175 acres of farmland and ranch land lost every day. Uh, I'm sorry, not every day. Every hour, 175 acres of farmland and ranch land are lost. It's astounding. And if we're going to be feeding ourselves, then we need farmland, of course. If we're to have food that's locally grown, we need land nearby. And food is most often grown between 1,000 and 2,000 miles away from where it's actually eaten. So for those into the local food and those into uh, the environment, this is very important. It's also very important that this proposition pass because uh, saving land for young farmers, for beginning farmers, for uh, people of color who want to be farmers, they need affordable land. If the land isn't purchased, uh, the price will go up dramatically. There'll be less land available, and uh, young farmers, uh, people of color farmers, uh, will have much harder time finding affordable land. Most of your uh, listeners probably know that saving land is uh, very, very vital for uh, mitigating global warming. Uh, we also want to save the beauty of the community for, the, for us, but for also for the next generation and generations thereafter. And if this land is sold for development, uh congestion traffic will increase dramatically, furthering suburban sprawl and furthering pollution. so uh those are the basic reasons we think this is very, very important um, so
8: if this mm-hmm. is preserved, what do you envision its uses being?
7: Currently, part of the land is being farmed, and the town is already discussing with that farmer continuing that farmer's lease because we want to support a local farm uh the farmer might be interested in purchasing it and then we'd be able to sell the land to the farmer at a low price compared to if that land wasn't there and the farmer had to look someplace else so part of that could be sold and then the money from that can be used to purchase additional open space and farmlands uh, we're also discussing the possibility of uh, leasing out parts to nonprofit organizations. We'd hope to sort of create some incubator farms where young people and new farmers can learn farming skills. We're also uh, discussing with some um, veterans organizations the possibility of leasing out some lands to these organizations that teach farming to uh, veterans to help them deal with PTSD and other kind of emotional problems that they might have so they can put their energies into something very productive for for society. So those are some of the things. There will also be uh, some land for a park for the uh, town, yeah. also for a community oh. garden because mm-hmm. we have community gardens in town but there's a waiting list because people are so excited mm-hmm. about community gardens. So we'd like some land reserved for that too.
8: So you mentioned a park at the end, but you're kind of, your focus is more on keeping it uh, agricultural, sounds like. Well, both.
7: More of the land would probably be reserved for farming, but a significant portion would be uh, brought to a park open space for, the, for town residents and nearby residents.
8: So there's been some reporting about some resistance to this proposition cropping up specifically Mm -hmm. among local farmers. Can you explain why you think that is and what you think about it?
7: Sure. There's really not that many farmers in town. There's a small group of farmers who do oppose this, a small vocal group, and that small group is the same group of uh, farmers and we're talking like four or five farms, and that same group have opposed pretty much every land conservation effort that we've made in town over the last few years. They have a sign that says farmers oppose it. Well, it's really some farmers, the small group of farmers who oppose it. But uh, we're very happy to say that the American Farmland Trust supports Proposition 2. They know how important this is to save land for farmers. Uh, We also have the support of Sierra Club, the Open Space Institute, the Hudson Mohawk Land Conservancy, the Conservation League of uh, New York. The Times Union uh, came out yesterday with a wonderful editorial in favor of Prop 2. Assemblywoman Pat Fahey is in support of it. Uh, The whole town board unanimously is in favor of this. And all five county legislators who represent different parts of Bethlehem are in favor. So we think the vast majority of people do see the need for protecting farms and open space.
8: Do you have anything that we haven't touched on that you want to add, or do you want to just tell people how to find out more information and where to find it on the ballot?
7: Yeah, most importantly, on the ballot, everybody should make sure to uh, turn the ballot over on the back of the ballot. In Bethlehem, there's two Propositions, Prop 1 and Prop 2, and all of New York State is Prop 1. So we're encouraging everybody to vote yes twice. Yes for Prop 1, the Environmental Bond Act, and yes for Prop 2 in Bethlehem for the preservation of 307 acres of land. And the town, I should mention, the town already has that money. There's no new taxes needed for this. The town has a dedicated fund uh, that was created just for this purpose. The real specific details are on the town website, you know, the Bethlehem Town website. You could find out everything you need to know. For those who are on Facebook, you can always go to Save Bethlehem's Farmlands and Open Spaces.
6: Early voting has already begun, and in-person voting is next Tuesday. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nate.
0: That was Moses Nagel reviewing the town of Bethlehem's proposal to preserve historic farmland on the ballot as Proposition 2 on November 8th.
1: Marsha Lazarus gives us a look into The Whispering Bones, an evening of ghost stories at the 8th Step Coffee House at Procter's in Schenectady. This includes interviews with 8th Step director Margie Rosenkrantz and Whispering Bones producer Kelvin Carraga. <laughs>
9: Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine and the 8th Step at Proctor's and Whispering Bones Concert. So I'm Marshall Lazarus and I'm sitting here with 8th Step Director Margie Rosencrantz. So Margie, I know that the 8th Step is entering its 55th year of operation, that's quite an 56 Margie's just giving me that extra uh, number so you know, that that's quite an accomplishment. I know the the A step for its wonderful acoustic, traditional and political music. How would you describe the 8th step's mission?
4: First of all, we always let the music speak for itself. Um, we don't headline, any certain political or social action, but we uh, support things that will make life better for people, for the country, for
9: each other. You know, I can think of some of the amazing performers you've had. Of course, I think of Holly Near, one of my favorites. I think of Pete Seeger a number of years ago shortly before his passing. I think of uh, Reggie Harris, I think of Tom Paxton, Buffy St. Marie, Richie Havens. And really what I'm so intrigued, looking at our performance tonight of Ghost Stories. And yes, it's Halloween and it's a perfect match uh, for, <laughs> the, for the holiday. What got you to kind of expand beyond music, and particularly social
4: justice story music. The Ghost Story Night has been very popular here from the beginning. It's kind of an experiment at first, but it's, it's um, grown and developed, and it's a crew favorite here, which is, is um, kind of makes me laugh. It's fun. Sometimes you just have to do something that's just fun.
10: Well, hello,
11: everybody. And for those of you who've been reincarnated, hello again. Well, you all look wonderful tonight. You know, you would make a perfect deli tray for the coming zombie apocalypse. <laughs> now, allow me to introduce myself. I've been a resident of these environments for the last hundred and seventy years. Many of them spent among the living, just like all of you. Well, some of you, anyway. <laughs> During my time on Earth, I served as a physician and an undertaker. <laughs> now in the afterlife, I'm the purveyor of a fine line of dead people products, including, of course, Dr. Venner off Underhill's creamed dem- embalming fluid. It's a spirited medley of herbs, spices, sarsaparilla, absinthe, a tiny touch of Johnny Walker red, and of course, formaldehyde. <laughs> Once you drink it, you won't drink anything else. <laughs> and now, with our new special ingredient, which when combined with the vaccinations in your blood will send your soul not to heaven or hell, but to a special cyber planet in a meta-universe owned and operated by Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's a very great place. They're doing wonderful work on pain management there. You see they, they strap you to a chair and they treat you to videos of Mr. Musk talking about himself. And to start things off, we have our dear friend Mary Murphy here to, to, to tell us story about the story of the dead.
10: Shakespeare wrote The moon, the moon, the moon Oh, swear not by the moon The inconstant moon That monthly changes in its circled orb. You know, at one time The moon didn't always shine in the night sky There was no moon only stars to light the path. And one time there was an old woman, and she lived in a small village with her grown son at the edge of a great marshland. Now, no one ever walked in that marshland at night because it was so dark, too dark to see the path. The water was, was black with no light to reflect. And, and the, the swarming creatures, these will o the wisp, would come out at night and shine their lantern over the dark waters, trying to lure travelers from the safe path. And if you stepped off into the mud, off the path and into the mud, you'd sink deeper and deeper until there was no escape. Horrible place. Now, I said that no one ever walked in the marshland at night, but that wasn't exactly true. The woman's grown son always walked home through the marshland at night after work, it was the quickest way home. And he said that no, I wasn't worried about the paths. He knew every path in the marshland, and he could never get lost. But one night, he was in the middle of the marsh. He was coming home late at night anyway. And he was in the middle, and he didn't know where he was. He was overcome by the darkness of the night. He lost his way and was never seen again. From that time, the woman took to walking the marshland every night, holding her lantern high, searching for her son, searching and searching, and also she needed to make sure that no one ever got lost the way her son did.
9: I'm standing here with Kelvin Correga, who is the whispering bones producer what a wonderful wonderful show
12: thank you very much
9: have you been doing this for a long time creating these ghost story shows
12: yeah this is um i think the 12th year that we've done it we've been doing it um um initially i did it at just one venue Hubbard Hall in, in in cambridge but over time we started exploring idea you of know, bring it around in different places and so yeah, it's been it's been fun. It's like I've got this huge collection of ghost stories, and every year I look for things that um, feel like they will work well together, and stories that have something to say, and you know, find things ways to put together even some comedy. So it's been an awful lot of fun. What a
9: what a diverse group of performers. So so, what is it about ghost stories that intrigues you?
12: You know, that's a great question, and I've thought about that because, you know, I started reading ghost stories when I was a kid. And my brother and I would lie in this big old iron bed in the attic room and under a quilt and read to each other and get very creeped out. And it's like, why do we do that? And, and I think the reason is because, at least for children, we, um, we're taught when we're very young that mommy's going to take care of us and everything's going to be fine and we watch Disney movies and all those things. But... In life, there are things out there and that kill people, that hurt people. And I think somehow for people it's a kind of a release to acknowledge that there are these forces in the world. I think it's a great thing for kids to be given a sense of what you get in a ghost story, of the horrors out there that are there. It's not I don't see it as harm, harmful as much as part of our growing up to acknowledge our relationship with death.
11: We're gonna end the show with a song, and we'd like you all to sing along on the chorus. We're gonna teach that to you now, if you're ready for that. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, all right, first line goes like this. I'll say it once, and then we'll sing it together. It goes, be kind to the ghost that you meet. Be kind to the ghost that you meet. Some folks don't like to be under six feet.
13: Some folks don't like to be under six feet.
11: I assure you, my friends, when you're dead, you're not done. I assure, I assure you, my, my friends, friend when, you're, when dead, you're dead, you're not done. not done. And I promise that one day you'll join in the fun. And I promise, I promise that, that one day you'll join in the fun. fun. Goodbye <laughs> oh, oh, I mean to the ghosts that you meet. Some folks don't like to be under six feet. I assure I you, my, my friends, friends, when you're, you're dead, dead, you're not done. done. I promise that one day you'll join in the fun. And all of the friends that we've lost all the years are in a spiritual pub drinking spirits and beers. They toast all our torments and smile and say, Don't sweat the small stuff, you'll be here one day. So be kind in the ghost that you meet. Some
13: folks would like to be under six feet. I assure you, my
11: friends, when you're dead, you're not done. And I promise that one day you'll
0: join in the farm. That was Marshall Lazarus talking about Whispering Bones, and evening of ghost stories at the Eight Step Coffee House at Proctor's in Schenectady, which was performed October 31st.
1: Co-founders of Salon Sands, Simon Lee and his sister, Mari Lee developed The End of Time with piano, violin, cello, and clarinet inspired by Oliver Messiaen's chamber music masterpiece, The Quartet of the End of Time. Historian Simon Lee speaks with Andrea Cunliffe.
14: Salon Seance is a group that uses theater and performance to bring the composer and the composition to life. So the quartet for The End of Time is by the ensemble, Salon Seance, with us right now because we're having this production at the Sanctuary for Independent Media on the 19th of November. Today with us, Simon Lee, who is a researcher and co-creator of this project with his sister Mai. Tell me something about yourself, Simon. Are you a musician as well?
13: An amateur musician, so I won't be uh, contributing uh, in my capacity as a musician. (laughs) But uh, I I am a researcher, and that is my uh, contribution to this project.
14: So you, along with your sister, had worked on this project. Now, you're in Tokyo. She's here in Mm. New York. Did you do this all by Zoom? How did you do this?
13: Uh, Well, this particular project on Messian, yes, it was. Uh, over Zoom. Um, although the other members were in the States, so, you know, they were able to do things in person. I uh, sadly was not afforded that that opportunity, but I shall be coming to uh, Troy.
14: What was this about Messian and his work that made you want to dwell into what could be done, what could be improvised, what could be created amongst the history of his music and the history of this mm. piece? what was it that inspired you and your sister to come up with this concept
13: we had different reasons for finding interest in this particular piece creating a project around it in my case it was partly you know the captivating nature of the piece musically speaking but also as a as a historian and researcher, what fascinated me was the reception history of the piece. This piece is quite popular, even though it's uh, quite contemporary. So you know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't sound like Mozart um, by any stretch of the imagination. But when it is performed, as it is performed often, it, it is usually portrayed as music that comes from. It, it was composed during the Second World War, and people uh, make all sorts of associations with that. What bothered me and also amused me was the association made here is to concentration camps. But of course, Messiaen was not in a concentration camp. He was in a prisoner of war camp, which is a a different kind of monstrosity. And that in this mostly intentional misdirect, um, when this piece is put on by a lot of organisers, I think it strays from what is was trying to achieve. And in this performance of ours, we want to kind of try to recover what messian himself wanted to express.
14: One thing I wanted to ask you, say he was not in a concentration camp, he was in a prisoner of war camp during World Mm -hmm. War II. And I think the reason he was in a prisoner of war camp is interesting, because I think it gives us some depth as to his character and personality.
13: Well, um, he was captured. He was working as a medic, an orderly, was during the phony war period that he was stationed, so no real fighting, and then suddenly he got hot. And he was escaping with his colleagues and uh, he was captured and transferred this camp called Stalag 8A. You know, the the purpose of a prisoner of war camp, in contrast to a concentration camp, is to hold them prisoner for exchange and also because it is dictated so by by the codes of conduct of war. It was cold. It was in Eastern Europe. It was cold and uh, they were malnourished. The inspiration for this piece comes from... A hallucination he had uh, when he was literally starving—you know—so much that he he was hallucinating. Uh, So the conditions were dire, but there was recreational activities. There were bands that would play, you know, orchestras. There was a library. Um, So to to capture that reality is part of what we want to do—to portray the true nature of the circumstances in which this piece was uh, created.
14: And how did you go about doing that? How did you come up with the idea?
13: Oh, uh, well, there's a lot of good scholarship on this particular piece and on Messiaen generally by musicologists and historians. You know, my work was mainly going through those and trying to reconstruct in my own way what was going through Messiaen's uh, mind at the time, what led to the piece uh, being created in the way that it was. What we try to do at Salon Sands is not have a lecture about the piece, you know, as it is done in, in many places, but to try to communicate those things directly from the composer himself. And of course, the composer is no longer with us, but we, we use the magic of theatre to uh, express these intentions in the most direct way. And we feel that the audience is most receptive when it's not, you know, some expert talking about this at a distance, at a remove. You know, the music is so so visceral, so direct. It is a language of its own. It doesn't really get its proper landing if it's not delivered in the right way. And that's what we try to do.
14: The idea of a seance, how did that come
13: about? Uh, It was, (laughs) um, it was a joke originally I joked that it could be called séance de musique, you know, which in French just means a music session, you know, like a jam session. But in English, of course, you know, it has séance, so, you know, that has a different meaning. And that was because already from when we began the project back in 2015, I think, you know, we, we had this idea to bring the composer's voice back. You know, that's the sense part, right? To bring them back and to make them plead their case, promote their own pieces so yeah it originally began as a joke but then you know we really kind of doubled down on the, on the sales aspect and also you know it comes from the um, recognition that musicians are mediums what they do is essentially just like a medium so if you think about it if you're a musician and you are practicing rehearsing to perform a particular piece what you're trying to do is to try to understand what the composer was trying to express with that particular piece And so you're always trying to recreate and communicate, uh, recreate by communicating with the composer what their intentions were. And the attitude that they take as they go on the stage is to be as faithful as possible to the composer's intentions. So in a way, the composer gets to live again, speak again, express those meanings that they try to express with those pieces through the musician, right? So that every time a musician performs their work, All over the world, you know, at any place in time, the composer is in that sense, you know, being brought back to life.
14: I can see how that can apply to any of the arts.
13: Art is communication. And it's also a means by which uh, artists long gone and long dead can still uh, communicate with us.
14: Can still live.
13: Right. But of course, they need a medium to be able to do that. Right.
14: And the medium Um, is music.
13: Right, music, the actors, you know, it comes from a recognition that uh, mediums are fellow souls uh, to, to artists.
14: Wow. Okay. I like that. At that
13: point, I think there's a poem by Rilke where he talks about this phenomenon, that in nature, in the world where we live, things decay and die, right? So you have this movement from life to death. His image is uh, a candlelight or something, but turn to ash. He said that in art... That's the only place where the reverse can actually be true, that ash can turn into fire again, as when dead words on a page, for example, in this case, poetry, as it is read and recited either, you know, actually, you know, with with a voice or in the mind's voice, those dead letters suddenly become imbued with meaning, you know, imbued with human emotions and experience, right? And you you make these associations in your mind, perhaps, but not just associations. You also feel real emotions as you recite them. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like that.
14: How would what happened in 1938 re- relate to what's going on in, in the world and society today?
13: Where this piece originates, right, as I said earlier, is is um, yeah. a hallucinatory episode that he had um, while he was at the prisoner of war camp um, from you know malnutrition. But here he was in a prisoner of war camp. He didn't really know when the war was going to end which meant he didn't know when he was going to get out. And there was little information from the outside world in the camp. For all he knew, he could be there for a very long time. If you don't know when you're going to get out, when you can't really see an end point to your particular situation, when is this going to end? A disorientation in time, you know, why, why am I in this situation in the first place? And the message that Messian wanted to focus on and wanted to really express with this piece is that even though there is a war going on, and even though he is suffering, and with no end in sight, so that there is something that this is leading towards, some kind of completion, fulfillment, a future point in time, or whenever that shall be, this will all make sense, and this shall all have been not not completely in vain. And so I think I feel like this was his way of trying to make sense and also endure through a time of uncertainty, right, and also of suffering that didn't seem to have a have an end date. And I think we can relate to that um, whenever we feel ourselves to be in, in, in such moments, uh, a rut, you know, as it were.
14: We're all looking forward to this experience. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This has been Andrea Kunle for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine speaking with Simon Lee, co-creator with Marie Lee of The End of Time by Ceylon Seance.
0: Salon Seance is coming to the Sanctuary for Independent Media on November 19th, 2022 at 7pm. This event is co-sponsored by the Friends of Chamber Music. Be there. Hey, and that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Lavonia Mallory.
1: And I'm Jacob Boston. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. That's Mike Dunley, Marsha Lazarus, Moses Nagel, Bria Barthel, Andrea Cunliffe, and your co-host, the lovely Livonia Mallory. Oh, and he's so sweet. Me, myself, and I, Jacob Boston. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org.
0: We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Mediasanctuary, or send us an email at hmm@mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays from 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand on our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.